This episode of The Candor Frame is sponsored by Fujifilm's latest collaboration with Frame.io, Camera to Cloud. With this innovative integration, you can now seamlessly transfer your images or videos directly from your Fujifilm camera to the web using C2C technology. To learn more about this exciting development, visit fujifilm-x.com and click on Camera to Cloud. I have a great appreciation for conversations with people who possess not only great ideas, but also the unwavering dedication to bring those ideas to life. There's something awesome about witnessing the transformation of a concept into a tangible creation through sheer passion and hard work. In the realm of photography, this quality of manifesting ideas is invaluable. It requires a unique set of qualities, vision, perseverance, and an unwavering commitment to the craft. The ability to translate a vision into a captivating image takes time, effort, and an immense amount of dedication. Bob Patterson, the creator and editor of Street Photography Magazine, epitomizes these essential qualities. Despite having no previous experience in publishing, he embarked on a journey to create and sustain a remarkable publication that explores the range and diversity of contemporary street and documentary photography. Bob's unwavering commitment to his craft is evident in the quality of Street Photography Magazine, which has thrived under his leadership for over a decade. Through his keen eye and discerning taste, he has curated a unique voice within the photographic community, showcasing the work of talented street photographers and documentarians from all over the world. As we navigate our own creative journeys, let's draw some inspiration from individuals like Bob, who reminds us of the importance of nurturing our ideas and putting in the time and effort required to bring them to life. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, con- congrats on the on the magazine. <laughs> when I when I saw that you've been around ten years, I couldn't believe it. It was just like, but <sighs> me neither. It goes by so so quick. It just flashes by. Yeah. Some days I wake up and I go, "How the fuck did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell?" Yeah, I, I I turned seventy in two months. Oh, congrats! Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Happens to all of us if we're lucky. <laughs> you know, because I was thinking, because I remember when, you know, we had talked initially, I think, when you had first started it. Yeah, it was, it was quite a while ago. Yeah, yeah. And and just to see that you were, had gone through, you know, different iterations and then you, you had, you know, made a 10-year mark, especially with a magazine. You know, yeah. I, I think a podcast is one thing, because all I have to do is kind of like turn on a mic Get some yeah. editing software and upload it. A magazine is no easy feat, even if you're not making a printed copy of it. Yes. And do you think that kind of not knowing what you were getting yourself into helped you to yes to make it happen? Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I just did it to to try out the software. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this story already, but. Uh, well, our guests haven't, so you should, you should, you should share it. 
That's true. That's true. Yeah, I was, I, I had a business. I was a web developer and I worked mainly with people. You know, I started back when um, we had the big economic meltdown, the, the uh, mortgage crisis. And there were a lot of people, I was out of work. And uh, so I started this web development business and, and I dealt with a lot of people about my age. I was in my 50s and late 50s or mid 50s. I couldn't, couldn't find, uh, you know, couldn't find a, a well-paying job. So I started my own business and, and I, I dealt with a lot of people in my situation, people, former executives that wanted to become consultants or business coaches or whatever. And they wanted to sell, to be able to sell their services online. It was very new at the time. So I created websites for them to do online courses, which is now pretty ubiquitous. But uh, so it was a lot of work putting these things together. And then I saw there was a magazine. It was called The Magazine on on Apple. They had the Apple newsstand at the time. It doesn't exist anymore. It was called The Magazine. It was made by a guy named Marco Armet, who's a, a developer. Uh, one of the uh, original creators of, I forget the name of the service. I'll, I'll come back to that. Anyway, so I saw that and go, that's cool. You know, I went to school to be a journalist and uh, broadcast journalism. I never went into it and always felt bad. I thought, gee, I can make my own magazine. So I got, uh, I, I got a license to do an app because uh, the magazines that were for sale on the newsstand at the time were all, you know, uh, iOS apps. So I got this license and I went through training to learn how to use it and put it together. I said, now I have to make a magazine. What do I make the magazine on? I had two choices in my mind, you know, make one about, uh, about membership site management. Now that's boring. I said, well, I could do one on street photography. I love doing street photography and I could do that. But it, and then I thought, who the hell am I to make a magazine about street photography? I'm just, you know, I just do it for fun, but I did it. I thought, well, I'll do this for six months and see how it works. Cause I wanted to use this magazine software for clients to do courses through an app rather than through a website. So I did it for a while and the damn thing took off, you know, it grew pretty fast. So, um, I thought, well, I'll keep doing this. And 10 years later, I'm still doing it. I asked the question cause I feel that me not knowing what I was getting myself into helped me greatly in terms yes. of starting a podcast. Because it, with both of us, we were adopting these new technologies that mm -hmm. most people didn't really understand. And we were sort of drawn into it for, for similar reasons that we wanted to sort of create something, you know, in mm -hmm. the form of content. And then we just figured it out. And because we didn't have anyone to really compare ourselves to, the usual thoughts and and machinations that would deter us just really didn't exist. No. And so it was just about playing and figuring things out and having not just pleasure in terms of creating the content, but in learning something new. I am curious as hell, and I love learning new things. And this was a big one. But, I mean, I, I agonized over it for several months. I told you this once before, but you probably, you probably forgot. And I, I said, who am I to do this, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I'm not that good of a photographer. I see so much good work out there, but you know, I I don't match many of those people. And one day I, we were we were, I was painting our kitchen. I was listening to a podcast, you, and it was it was an episode where you were on by yourself, and you talked about how you, I think it was like episode two seventy eight something like that, and you were talking about how you struggle with uh, self doubt and uh, maybe imposter syndrome. I don't know if you use that term. And how you work through it. And I thought, yes, he's right. And that was the tipping point to get me started. Oh, wow. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I'm it was huge. I, I, I've recommended that episode to many people. That's great. I was, I was just listening to a conversation with Rick Rubin, who's like a famous sort of music producer. Yeah. And he has a book on, on creativity. And uh, in the interview, he was talking about creativity... The differences in terms of creativity as expressed by children as opposed to adults. Aha, uh -huh, yes. And, and the idea is that children don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And they don't know about the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. And the creativity that kind of um, comes out of them really sort of taps into this. If you imagine creativity as being, you know, some sort of like energy that surrounds us, children mm -hmm. are able to sort of tap into it and make things and they're not concerned with how good it is or how whether people are going to like it or whether it's going to make any money they just create and then adults they start qualifying yeah all of those things that they're trying to do and it stifles the creativity or it stops it cold and one of the reasons i wanted to have you on the show is that i think I think it's a story that's really important for people to listen, um, to hear. Because especially for those of us that are older, over 50, the idea of being able to do something creative, to do something that drives us, can be burdened by all these all these sort of qualifications, all these justifications mm -hmm. as to why why we can't do it. Oh, it's like, it's too hard to learn, I'm too old, whatever it is. And the fact that you did it, started it when you did, and that despite all the sort of technical challenges and all the things you had to learn, that you kind of persevered and have made this a thing that so many people enjoy. How much, in terms, in the spirit of that, how much do you think being able to sort of tap into that, that kind of creativity as opposed to something where you know, with the photography, you have so many things you can compare yourself to. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And, and it can be sluggish progress with that. But with, with the producing the magazine, it's another form of creativity. But it wasn't hampered by the potential for all that negative self-talk. So if you compare that, what, what, what do you think about that, that comparison? I've never thought about it that way, but that's true. I didn't, since I had no experience with it. I didn't know what could go wrong. Mm. Like what you were talking about before, um, about children being able to be creative. I, uh, I remember reading an article somewhere about, it's about intelligent people, not that I'm smart by any means, but they have a harder time making decisions and moving forward because they, they have the imagination to think of everything that can go wrong. Mm. And, and say, well, I better not do that because this could happen or that could happen. And it holds us back. But, uh, yeah, I think just 
not having any memory of anything that could have gone wrong with something something that's so new frees you up to to move forward. So tell me about producing that first first issue. What was involved <laughs> in in making that happen? Well, I was on a completely different platform at the time. It was called Magcast, and it was pretty clunky because you had to make a PDF of every article and then upload that to the system, and then you had to go in and and uh, uh, this is physically making. You had to go in and add links and and things, and it, it was it was a lot of work, a lot of a lot of manual work. And we had no content. Nobody knew who the magazine is. Uh, never existed before. And early on, we basically had to beg for content, contact people, spent all this time. Uh, you probably went through the same thing mm -hmm. with the podcast, getting people to, to come on. Uh, luckily, I had some. Uh, I had some contacts because of a, uh, a course I took. And I'm going to get back to this course because it involves you again. <laughs> Maybe you, you keep popping up. You're like Forrest Gump, I think. But so uh, I, I took a course, an online course uh, on Better Photo years ago about street photography. And I got to know this group of people, a guy named Joe Wigfall, a few other people. And then after the course ended, we decided to create a, uh, or Joe wanted to create a, uh, a Flickr group, and this is like 2006, something like that. So we, we created a Flickr group, and some of the people from the course came on. So when I started the magazine, the first thing I did was reach out to some of the better photographers from that group, and uh, which helped get the ball rolling. So a lot, we spent a we it was just me at the time. Uh, we spent a lot of time just trying to find content. That was that was the hardest thing, and then putting it all together was tedious. Very tedious and time-consuming. When you initially put the idea out there, what was the response? Not just in terms of this community of photographers, but your family and friends. Um, family and friends is like, what are you doing? Don't you have enough to do? <laughs> <laughs> You've got this business that's keeping you busy. So that that was the big one, and uh, of course, a lot of people, friends. Well, I've got. I'm doing this magazine. What's it called? Street photography magazine. What's that? You go out and take pictures of streets. <laughs> You've probably heard that yeah. one. So uh, it's it's a lot easier today. That's for sure. Oh yeah, because you've been through several different iterations in terms of how you make the magazine and how oh, you my. sort of distribute. But yeah. You know, but, but, you know there, there's so many things. I mean, one, you, know, you started because you were sort of, your interest was sort of peaked because of this new technology, this, mm -hmm. you know, this tablet, this this computer you could hold in the palm yeah. of your hand. Um, and so there's the technology part. But the other part of a, making a, a good magazine is about the content. It's like, what's it going to look like? What mm -hmm. What are the... What are the articles going to read like? Are they going to be like a question and answer? Are they going to be interviews? Or, you know, yep. all that stuff. How did you sort of figure that out? Because, like you said, you were already very busy enough, and there was, and inevitably, there's a whole lot of research that has to go into learning how to do this thing properly. So, 
how, you know, what was your sort of game plan if there was one for figuring all that out? Yeah, there really wasn't a game plan. I just, you know, I had already taught myself web development, taught myself PHP and then HTML and CNS, all, all, CSS, all that stuff that goes into the back end of websites. Uh, Word, I, I did WordPress. And so I'd already been through that and I just, just jump in and do it. And when I hit a brick wall or, uh, you know, an obstacle, well, you just have to find a way around that obstacle. And that's, that means learning new things. Well, I love to learn new things. So it was actually fun. It still is. So it's, uh, I just looked at it as just like one series of obstacles after another, just to, just to overcome. And some things work and some things don't, but you got to put one foot in front of the other and, like you say, when you don't know what you're getting into, you just let it happen. There's a term used in podcasting called pod fading. Yes. And it done that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but luckily, I kind of recovered from it. Uh, but it's, it's this sort of tendency where there's a lot of enthusiasm for the creation of the podcast and people spend all this time and effort figuring it out, putting out episodes, and then... You know, after about like 10 episodes, they kind of go, this is a lot of work. Yeah. And then it just sort of peters out and then it just sort of disappears into the ether. And yeah. and for me, there were moments where I, I almost sort of pod faded. Mm -hmm. oh, but sure. I came back to it because um, there was something about the conversations I was having and in creating something from them mm -hmm. and putting it out in the world that I felt I couldn't do without. And that helped me to, to push through that, especially during times where I didn't have enough time or I didn't mm -hmm. have enough money or, yeah. or, or was struggling to get somebody on the show. Um, what was it for you that kept you moving forward even when a bunch of valid excuses started coming up for you to sort of to stop doing it. Yeah. Well, I did pod fade a couple of times because I created some other podcasts before that. Yeah, what kept me going? It, I mean, it's like any, any accomplishment. I mean, half of it is just showing up. You just have to keep showing up. And uh, a former client of mine, a friend of mine, is a bodybuilder. And he was a competitive bodybuilder. He's in his 50s now. But that's what he said. He said the people who are really champions, they show up. They go to the gym every day, whether they want to or not. They roll out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you just keep going. And, and But like you said, you said there's you were getting something out of it that kept you going. Um, I think for me, man, you ask really good questions. You know, I've got to... I've got to <laughs> Thanks. I always say you're the best interviewer in American media, but um, yeah, why did I keep doing it? Um, I think I, I got a charge out of getting to know some very creative people. And, you know, I wanted personally, it was a personal journey for me. I wanted to become a better photographer. And what better way than to talk to people who are more experienced than yourself, um, particularly when we started doing interviews. Um, you know, I went to college to be a broadcast journalist. I, I worked in radio in, during college, and I always, I was always upset with myself. I never pursued that as a career. 
And, and this gave me an opportunity to do that. And uh, early on, we started doing audio interviews, actually from episode, or not episode, from issue number one. We almost always, or I almost always interviewed people just like we're doing right now. And I really like that. Uh, I like being able to make the connection. I'm very comfortable talking to people. Uh, at the time, it was on the phone or on, uh, you know, what, what's the, uh, uh, I can't even remember the name of the service. The one thing to replace the telephone that Microsoft owns now. Uh, Skype. Skype, yeah. thank you. Start of Skype. I heard you the other day on a podcast, and, and you said uh, you were very shy when you were young, but you weren't shy when you carried a camera around. Mm -hmm. I'm also very shy, and but I'm not shy on the phone. I don't know why, but I'm not shy on the phone. So I like talking to people on the phone, and later, of course, I like talking to them on Zoom. And uh, I got some kind of rush out of that, I guess, and that that kept me going. I really going. I really enjoy talking to people, and the challenge of being able to carry on uh, an interesting conversation for an hour or so. Don't always do that, but. Uh, so that's that's probably what kept bringing me back. I, I, that's something we we both have in common. Not not just the sort of the shyness, but that sort of that early interest in journalism. Mm -hmm. That that there was something about that that one felt very empowering, especially to someone who was shy. Yeah, and and sort of this feeling that oh man, I wish I had done more with that. That. Mm -hmm. And then somehow we've both sort of recreated what we thought we had lost, yeah. In this, in in our own enterprise, and we get to do the very thing we were kind of inspired to do, but we're not having to follow somebody else's rule book. Yeah, you do it in your own terms. Yeah, which is not somebody which is else's. So gratifying. Yeah, and I, you know, my one of my big heroes as a child was my grandfather. He was a journalist. He, he was the uh, editor of the Kokomo Tribune in Kokomo, Indiana. Oh, wow. He was one of these tough old guys. He could type like 100 words a minute with, his, with two fingers. And he smoked like a fiend, you know, camel, non-filter cigarettes. You know, tough, tough guy. And then when he retired, he was publisher of this newspaper. He started his own newspaper in a small town. He had the first offset press in the state of Indiana. And so he ran that. He was, you know, until, almost until he died. And it, he used to take us there as kids, and we'd make our own newspapers. They had, back in those days, they'd, they'd, they'd take all the type and lay it out, you know, physical lead type, and they'd lay it out in this big frame thing and then roll ink over it and print, you know, print these pages to proof them. And so he let us play with that, and we'd, my sister and I would make up our own newspapers and things, and I just loved it. And I think that's what got me started. And then as I got older and I went to college, I I like technology, I like TV and radio, so so I got into broadcast journalism. And But I didn't do it, like you said, but it's always been in the back of my head. Well, now I'm doing it. Now I'm a journalist, and my beat is street photography or documentary photography or whatever. So what do you think prevented you from doing it when you were younger? Well, I, that's 
money, for one. I graduated from college with a degree uh, from Howe University in their Scripps School of Journalism, and uh, I set out to get into radio. Moved to Cleveland, that's where my wife was from, and it was really hard to get a job. We were in the middle of a recession. I needed to make money, got into, uh, uh, got into sales, started with Motorola, and, uh, you know, got to make a living. Radio didn't pay anything, and you really had to move around a lot. My wife, being a Clevelander, Cleveland people, they don't like to leave. Mm. Very, and uh, so we, we stayed there, and, uh, you know, I got some nice jobs. They got better and better, became president of a company. And you know how it is. You just get caught up in yeah. your career, raising a family. Both my kids were journalists as well. Yeah, yeah. Your, your son's, a, I think, a documentary photographer. Is that right? Well, he he uh, he he went to Ohio University. Also, he got he's a photojournalist and worked for a year, and that's for a year in a small newspaper. And then that's when all the newspapers started laying off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back around two thousand eight, he he just went he went back to school. He just he's just graduated two weeks ago. He's a mechanical engineer now. Oh wow. And he's still one hell of a photographer. But it seems like it's in your genes in, the, in that family. It is. It is. Yeah, my daughter was a journalist. Her first, she left college and went to China for four or five years as a journalist. 21 years old. Didn't speak the language or know a soul. That's yeah. guts. Oh, <laughs> guts, that's, that's awesome. But I think, you know, regardless of, I don't have any children, but I would imagine that one of the things is that you want your kids to have a good life to be able Absolutely. to make a living and have a happy life. But I think this you likely have to have some sense of pride that your children were so bold. Yes. Yes. I couldn't believe it that she wanted to go there after college. And we dropped her off at the airport in June or something. And we went then we went to visit her in China in the following May. And it was so strange walking around with her with this funny language coming out of her mouth, <laughs> completely self-taught. <laughs> but uh, it was yeah, a cool experience. So in terms of the magazine, you, you know, you use the terms street photography, documentary photography. Documentary, street photography is often considered sort of a, a branch of documentary uh, photography. Yeah, so I agree. And because, you know, it's your magazine and you can choose who you get to showcase on it. When you started thinking about who you wanted to reach out to, to publish in, in the magazine, and you have this sort of this is an umbrella term of street photography, how would you consider people? And how has that changed over the last 10 years? Uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. We, we, I keep saying we, it's we <laughs> now, by the way, and I've got to give a shout out to our editor, Ashley, before we go here, because... She really just makes this thing go for sure. I guess I'm trying to remember. Uh, I was on Flickr, and Flickr had a still does had a very rich street photography community. So um, I wanted early on to focus on people who were not super famous because there's just so many great photographers out there. Nobody knows about it. Reminds me of the movie Twenty Feet from Fame. If you ever saw that which is uh, about uh, the backup singers and the rock scene. And they were all, they're all like just amazing vocalists, but they're just 
20 feet away from from the front of the stage to be famous and any one of them could be famous if the right things happen same thing with photography so i reached out to some people on, on Flickr. uh just did a lot of research online looking up different street photographers and then we'd reach out invite people oftentimes we'd hear crickets don't hear many crickets now which is really good uh reached out to some people that I reached out to you. You were a very early interview for us. Just, I think, anything that resonated with me, anybody who did work that, that I thought was strong, we would reach out to. How does that happen today? Many people are now knocking on our door. And uh, so we have to, uh, you know, we have to say no a lot, yeah. which I'm sure you do mm -hmm. as well. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and we see somebody good in you know, on, on any of those sites, I'll reach out and uh, and ask them. We also, sorry, I'm just trying to think. I don't even think about this stuff. You know, I just yeah. do it. So, <laughs> but um, sometimes, yeah, people reach out to me and I'll look up their stuff and see what I think and invite them or not invite them. Many people who have already contributed to the magazine, because not only do we feature people, people submit articles to us. So if somebody has been active and they've sent us several articles and they're really good, we want to give them a platform to, to tell their story personally. So many of the people you see as our features, our featured photographers, uh, will be people who have contributed to the magazine in some way. People who just send me a link saying, hey, look at my stuff, yeah. probably don't get too far. I can't imagine how many of, you, of those things you get. Oh, yeah. I get, I get a lot. It's for some reason the last two years, yeah. It's just it's amazing how many solicitations I get, and you know some of them ended up on, on the show. But the the nature of things for me, especially since I kind of pulled back and stopped doing the show every week and do it yeah much every 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 other week, is that there there are less slots that I can fill. So yeah. I I have to really kind of think about you know what the what the season is going to shape up. I think that the last eight years, I would say, they have been people that I put on the list that I didn't get to until years later. Yeah, same you know, here. It's like three or four years later, I'll look through the list and I go, oh, yeah, let me get this person on. Just because I think it's not not just that it's an appropriate type, but I think that they would be a good fit considering who's already been on the show and what's coming forward. You know, and there's some people that I just like enjoy talking to, and I'll have them back on the show just because I enjoy I enjoy the conversation. So all of that sort of factors into okay, of all the people <laughs> who I I have to consider every year, um, how many end up appearing on the show? You know, if if things change to the point where this is all that I'm doing, and I'm no longer, you know, working a nine to five, and I'm earning enough revenue to be able to dedicate more time to this, then going weekly is, is, is something I really would love to be able to do. And I know that not everyone listens to every episode, but man, every time I sit down to have a conversation, it's often the best part of my day. I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking, talking with someone. It's just so, it's, it's a rarity in my normal day to day. Same here. It's, it's, I find it energizing. Yeah, just especially when you have 
somebody really interesting on. Sometimes you have to draw them out, mm-hmm. and this, that that can be difficult. I haven't had too many, but uh, some and some people surprise me. Uh, I wind up connecting with somebody. I go, ah, I don't know about. Oh, you know, should I do this or not? Yeah, <laughs> and then it's like, wow, that was a great conversation. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because some people, there's some people who have are, like you. I'm I'm showcasing not only people who are like well known and master photographers, sure, yeah, but you know people that people that I don't even have a lot of information from, so I can't do like a, a normal deep dive. Yeah. in terms of researching them, I just kind of go. It looks like I like the work, and I think they have an interesting story, and I'm just going to roll the dice. And then at the end of it, I'm going, wow. And I love moments like like that. And I can't yeah. wait for the episode to get out there, because I know it's going to resonate with people. Yeah. Yeah, you've had a lot of those. Over the years, I boxed myself into a corner photographically, because I think, okay, I've got this street photography magazine all I should do as a photographer is street photography. Mm-hmm. And I'd stayed in that trap for quite a while. And uh, and then I realized, you know, that's not all I want to do. I mean, we're all photographers, yeah. right? One of the things that, that got me thinking about that was, was a show you did not long ago with uh, a Nook Krantz, mm-hmm. the woman who yeah. photographs the cowboys. And uh, it's funny, I was pitched on on having her on because she wrote it. She did a book, you know, and you, and you know, you get a lot of people reaching out and wanting, you know, wanting their authors to come on. And uh, I didn't do anything with it. And then I listened to her on your show and I go, well, she told a great story. She was a good storyteller telling about yeah. how she worked with all these cowboys. And I'm thinking, I wasn't even going to listen to it. You know, horses, what do I care about horses? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she told such a good story and, and just seemed like the coolest person. I looked up her website and I saw her photographs of these horses and the, the cowboy photos. I bought the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She owes you a commission for that. <laughs> I bought the book. And it's a wonderful book. I live in horse country. I don't know if you I moved to central Virginia several years ago. Big time horse country. And I've got several friends who are really into horses, so I keep showing them this book. I go, I go, you got to see this thing. Just, just amazing work. It's something completely different from anything I do or will ever do. Man, I've really taken this in a different direction. I'm sorry about that. Hey, like, like <laughs> but, I said earlier, this is podcasting. It can go anywhere. That's true. That's true. Let's talk about camping. No, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the idea of adding a podcast to what you're already doing in the in mm-hmm. with respect to the magazine why i mean as if you couldn't make your life any more complicated than it already was yeah i did it because it's a good way to promote the magazine we have no advertisers and that's on purpose sometimes i question that decision um, as you know mm-hmm. um, but i did it i do it to get some eyeballs on the magazine and I just love to do it. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, I get I just get energy from the conversations. Doesn't take that long. Uh, I I do have somebody who edits it. Uh, I when I try to edit it myself, I hate listening to myself, and I hate my hillbilly isms. <laughs> I grew up in the hills of Southern Ohio. <laughs> 
And again, I'm comparing myself to other people. Uh, so I had to get somebody to edit it. So that really frees me up. I just, I love doing it. And I, I think if I ever stopped doing the magazine, I'd still keep doing the podcast. You know, one of the things that I, I when, I'm, when I'm teaching, what I'm trying to teach in almost all my workshops is, is sort of the mindset. Getting, yes. into, getting into a space where you can sort of tap into that creativity mm -hmm. and be able to return to it over and over again. And, you know, you said initially that you started the magazine as a means of improving your skills as, as a photographer. Mm -hmm. and, I th and, and, and tell me, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but the thinking there going, oh, I'm going to talk to all these photographers and I'm going to learn what they do and I'm going to apply it to my own work and I'll become a better photographer. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that the act of creating the magazine and the podcast, that that in itself has likely taught you some things that you've been able to apply to your photography. What would you say those things are? Well, I have to think about that one. Just the act of creating a magazine, what's it done for my photography? I think it's caused me to slow down and think more. I don't, don't take as many photographs. Um, I think it's helped me in my composition more as well. You ever see the uh, movie Steve Martin made? And I can't remember the name of it, but he was in, uh, there was a scene where he was like in Germany. And he gets pulled over by the police. And they put him through, they put him through a, a test, DUI yeah, test. Yes. You, know. uh -huh. you ever see this? Yes, scene? I remember. Yeah. Okay, and then so they were having him walk the line in the middle of the road, and then they're having him like put put his finger on his nose and jump on one foot, and then they have him do cartwheels, and he he Steve Martin stops and says, "Gee, your drunk tests are hard." <laughs> That's just like your questions, <laughs> and uh, so to say, I'm not real sure what I mean. It has. But I can't really articulate how it's helped my photography. Yeah. Would you? Let me rephrase that then. Okay. Were you, did you? Were you a perfectionist, and in producing the magazine, make you less so? Yes. Sometimes you just have to abandon things and say they're good enough because I am a perfectionist, which gets in my way in many ways. And you know, we have deadlines. And when the deadline comes, you just got to pull the trigger and move forward. And it's caused me to stop being such a perfectionist. It's caused me to spend less time tweaking little things that probably nobody else notices. Yeah. And one of the things I've learned from my own show, because I'm a perfectionist as well, and uh -huh. that has sure. stifled me not only in terms of the podcast, but a lot of other creative efforts. Mm-hmm that desire to try to make it perfect and make it right the first time, which is completely absurd and antithetical to the whole creative process. But what I, what I learned was, even with episodes that I felt were lackluster or just completely sucked, <laughs> or that I just felt didn't work, I would often get a response from people mm -hmm. who saw a gem in there yeah. that they really appreciated, which which gave me a sense that I am not the best judge and arbiter of the very things that I'm creating. 
it's only you. It's only what's inside in between your ears. Right. You know? And so that's yeah. that's has sort of freed me from this chokehold of, of perfectionism. It hasn't I haven't completely gotten rid of it, but it gives me a healthy perspective about what I think this thing is, what it's meant to be, and how much of my hand is actually on it. Does that happen with your photography as well? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I think that's one of the harder ones to sort of completely be free with. Because I think with with the photography, it's... I know what photographs I'm good at creating mm -hmm. that I can re go to and repeatedly create without any problem. And that involves me being very in control of what I'm doing in terms of composition, my observation, observations of lighting, line, shape, moment, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And they have allowed me to be very consistent. But the thing that's often missing from that is a certain sense of spontaneity, chaos. Mm -hmm. And when I see it in other people's work, I go, oh, <laughs> God, I want that. But the thing is, I have to, I have to let go and, and not necessarily not make the photographs that I'm, I'm used to making, but finding some way to, to put that aside and just say, just play, just, just risk making the bad photographs. And I have techniques to do that. You know, I'll, I'll hold the camera away from me. I won't look at the viewfinder. I'll just jet the camera out on the scene mm -hmm. and press the button, not caring whether the, the, you know, the horizon line is going to be parallel to, to the camera or that it's sure. going to be slightly blurred or I'm going to be cutting something off or, you know, or, or purposely using a slow shutter speed so that the image is not sharp so that it's purposely blurred. Because when I do those things, I don't know what I'm going to get. Mm -hmm. And I'm often surprised. And I've learned that because I've given those assignments to my, my students and it makes them incredibly uncomfortable and inevitably they produce images that are so exceptional, that are so exciting, so original, that it reminds me, oh, I need to follow my own advice <laughs> and get into that space. But it's, it's hard when you know too much. Yeah. I think it pays to have the memory of a flea sometimes. <laughs> and, and it's just the importance of limitations. Yeah. yeah. I uh, going back to your question that I didn't answer before, but you just reminded me of this. Is is I've I've needed to spend more of my focus or my energy on making photographs for myself that I like, and forget about making anything that I think other people mm -hmm. would prefer. And I got that basically from you know from working through the magazine and working on the magazine and uh, and didn't realize that before. For example, I I have a started a personal project photographing the jazz scene in our community. I live in a college town, Charlottesville. Two of your former interviewees live in my area, but I'll tell you that later. Anyway, I wanted to to get to know these people and photograph their lives, you know, not just on stage, but you know, rehearsing and just living their, you know, just living their lives. So we have a very rich community of music musicians in this town. 
so I started doing that. I'd get invited to come to rehearsals and things, and and uh, and they just shot the way I wanted, just to just you know using my own vision. And then I got invited to photograph for the local jazz society, which has given me access to, to concerts and venues and things. And I started doing that. And then then I'd make the photos. I go hmm, or when I'm make when I'm shooting. I go, hmm, they probably want something like this, or they probably want something, want something like that. I was doing it all in monochrome. I said, well, I better shoot some color because they're going to want color. Next thing I know, I'm not doing what I want. Mm, yeah, I'm doing what I think they want, which may not be true. I go, wait a minute. <laughs> I have to stop that. So I did. Did you, find a, did you have a similar experience when you were producing the magazine? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I... I think I find if 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 we do things, I'm going to say we this time because Ashley, our editor, puts as much or more time into it as I do, and so we're just picking things we like, things that resonate with us, and we both have different tastes, so that that helps, and you know not just things to fill the pages, mm-hmm. but stuff that were maybe that I learned from, that has made a difference to me. Uh, hopefully, I'm not passing up things that could make differences to other people. But um, and like with those jazz photos, the ones that I really like that that made a difference to me, people really seem to like. And the things I shoot that I think other people need, not so great. In the midst of our busy lives, it's easy to overlook the significance of creativity. But let me tell you, it's an essential part of who we are. When we neglect our creative side, we deny ourselves a fundamental aspect of our being. We need to make a conscious effort to nurture that part of ourselves from which creativity blossoms. For me, nurturing my creativity means immersing myself in the arts. I find solace in reading books, exploring captivating photography, and engaging in conversations with fellow artists. These experiences invigorate my spirit and ignite my imagination. They provide the fuel that keeps my creativity alive and thriving. If you share my passion for creativity and believe in the power of artistic expression, I invite you to become a Patreon supporter of The Candid Frame today. By supporting the podcast, You not only ensure its continued existence, but also enable countless others to benefit from the enriching conversation it brings. Your contributions help create a space where creativity thrives and meaningful connections are forged. To become a Patreon supporter, simply visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. There you can choose from various support tiers starting from just $5 per month. Your generosity makes a significant impact in sustaining this valuable resource for artists and creatives all around the world. Join the community of Patreon supporters and be a part of the Candid Frame's mission to inspire, uplift, and empower artists everywhere. Visit patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame and become a supporter today. But I think being you know being an editor being a sort of a podcaster that one of the things that that I think makes the things that we produce 
unique and not as cookie cutter as some other content is there is mm -hmm. that we are allowing our own tastes and sensibilities and interests and passions sort of manifest itself in all yeah. the different choices that we're making. And, and I think that is really at the heart of making something that even though it is incredibly personal becomes universal. I mean, that may be a little bit of a sort of a cliche, but I think it's, there's something that's very true to that. And I think that the creation of something and then putting it out into the world provides that. But in, you know, in today's world, mm -hmm. there, there, there are people who do not hesitate with their criticism. Right, especially in the word of <laughs> really? Twitter and Facebook <sighs> and all that stuff, you can't help but but you know be curious about those responses. Yeah. And I had my way of sort of dealing it, but I wonder for you, you know, what what that was like and how you contended with it to deal with criticism. Yeah, especially about something you're doing that you're so personal and you're so passionate about. Everybody loves it so much, I've never had to deal with that. <laughs> no. It's hard. For me, it's very hard. Uh, I'm a pleaser, mm -hmm. and that can be tough when you're dealing with the general public. And I can't say it doesn't bother me sometimes. Uh, I remember hearing somebody on a podcast once. They had all these people give him accolades for whatever it was that he did. But he gets one complaint, and he can't sleep at night. Oh, yeah. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. Uh, it's uh, that memory of a flea thing again. You just have to, uh, you know. I think you just have to put it behind you. You know, I spent many years in in senior level management and had to deal with lots of uh, lots of complaints and criticism, especially in large corporations. Uh, you know, it comes at you from all sides, and I think uh, I guess. Like like I said before, I know it's 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 what I like and what I feel strongly about, and you know you're welcome to your opinion, I'm welcome to mine, and I just move on. Yeah, I I think one of the things that really helps is the fact that you don't have advertisers that you have to sort of cater yeah. to. Because I worked yeah. I worked in the magazine industry for eight years, so it was yeah, man. the the advertisers were or how the how the magazine came out. It wasn't so much yeah. the subscribers, it was all the people who advertised. And so much of the content, unfortunately, sometimes was influenced by by the advertisers. Sure. Which was frustrating for me, because I felt, I, it felt a little, I don't know what the right word is for for it, but it's, it's not a good word, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Keep it clean, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and, but I understand sort of the, the need for it, especially now. I mean, in order for me to be able to do it in the way that I, I, I want to do it, um, listener support in and of itself is not, is not enough, you know. But one of the things I, that I sort of adhere to is that this show remains the show that I've always wanted it to be, and it's not going to be changed for the same yeah. as with advertisers. But you made a purposeful decision not to do that. Yeah. Was that one of the reasons or were there other reasons why, why you decided not to? not to solicit advertising for the show. That's just, just the show being the magazine. Yeah, two reasons. Uh, one, I, I don't want to be influenced by 
camera manufacturers or lens manufacturers or or software people or whatever. So just like you want it to be what I want it to be. And number two, it's a lot of work. Um, I did, we did solicit a sponsor once a few years ago and we put together a package deal. It was uh, somebody who has a um, um, website, a photography website platform, uh, which was very good, by the way. So we worked, you know, we put together a package where, you know, we'd have an article about them, an interview and, and all that. And it was a ton of work. Um, the money was nice, but I couldn't see myself doing that every month uh, for them or somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I don't know if you find it to be a lot of work. Do you, I, I think the advertisers you have are a really good fit for what you yeah. do. And I assume you, you're really genuine about your uh, what you say about them but yeah it was, it's just a lot of extra work and we've got enough work to do already so uh, you know I come out of the subscription business anyway I spent most of my career uh, as a senior manager and executive in the cable TV business which is always driven by subscriptions so when I started the magazine it was just an extension of what I've done almost my entire career was uh, build a business around uh, what basically what the subscribers want yeah like for me and especially now because i'm i'm considering making some outreach but one of the things is that has always been a priority for me is i always wanted the support of people or businesses who believed in the mission and believed in what i was yeah. doing and not just looked at the show as oh he has an audience um and we want to tap yeah. into that and i've said no to a bunch of different things that just I bet you have. that yeah. just were were not a good fit or or people who I just from their initial emails I realized they had never listened to the show. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's in the form of people who want to be guests and and people who want to advertise uh-huh. it's like you have no idea yeah. what what we do. Uh, and it's and those, those are easy too. to sort of to sort of write off. Yeah. But there's a certain possessiveness and protectiveness about it that I have, and I think that you have as well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I like like that you brought on Frames Magazine. They do a wonderful job. I've met Tomash, and and, uh, I was a big fan of Fuji Love. Still am, actually. And uh, I'm glad to see him expand. Good, smart smart businessman. I think a real good fit for you. Uh, One of the smart things that you did was bring on someone else to help you. And you've mentioned Ashley a couple, sort of a couple oh, of times, so oh, I got lucky. Yeah, I, I'd wish I'd done it earlier myself. I have Martin who edits the show for me, and yeah. he's been doing it for quite a long time. And he is—he's a much better editor than I will ever be, and he saves me so much grief and time. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that I spent editing the show myself because I can't listen to some of the earlier episodes because I feel like I've just screwed up the, <laughs> no. the, the engineering <laughs> of, the, of the sound on those things terribly. But tell me about your your collaboration with her and making the, the show happen. How did it come about? Because she was in South America. She was, yeah. Yeah, when you first started working with her. Yeah, that's the nice thing about technology today. Yeah, we've been, I think... She's been working for me for nine years, maybe eight years. It's been a long time. Yeah, uh, our, our editor is Ashley Refo. And uh, yeah, she's from Florida, living in 
Florida again, which is really helpful. And we had never met each other in person until this past February. Wow. Uh, I live in Virginia. She lives in Florida. And we were supposed to meet last year. We went down, my wife and I went to Florida for a few weeks just to get out of the semi-cold we have here. And we went, uh, we went last year and we had planned to meet with Ashley and her husband for dinner. We, so we stopped, we stayed in St. Augustine. Uh, wouldn't you know it? She was uh, like eight and a half months pregnant and <laughs> couldn't quite make it that day. So we, uh, so we had to wait. So we did it again this year. So that was really cool to finally meet her in person. I, mean, I feel like she's like a second daughter, you know. But uh, yeah, I, we met. I mean, I hired her through an online support site. And I just brought, she was a writer. And I brought her in to um, just help proof articles and things. And as we went along, you know, she's extremely talented and uh, one of the smartest people I ever met. And the thing you need to do when you hire somebody to support you is get somebody that's good at things you're not good at. Right. And mm-hmm. she definitely is that. You know, we used to publish. Our publishing schedule was pretty random. Early on, we actually missed a couple of months. But when she came in, she suggested we publish on the same day every month, which which we started and haven't stopped. Um, but anyway, she came in as, as really more of a proofreader. And when I saw how talented she was, eventually made her the editor. She's a hell of an interviewer, too. She's, uh, if you've ever listened to any of the episodes or uh, primarily interviews, uh, feature interviews, she's really, really good, very thoughtful. So she makes, makes it a lot better. She keeps me, keeps me in line. Yeah, that's one of the lessons I've kind of learned about creating something, especially over the long term, that at some point you have to realize that you can't do it alone, that it's just not sustainable. And it can't really grow if it's all on your shoulders and you're sort of doing everything. Yeah, because you can only do so much. And you, you, you need space to think about things and to get creative in terms of just business problem solving and coming up with new ideas. And if you're just grinding it out every day, doing all the, the day-to-day tactical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you're, what you're doing is you're working in the business, not on the business. And she's freed me up to spend more time working on the business as well. You've kept the price of the subscription really modest on this magazine. and Really? Yeah. I'm raising the price. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, you don't have to deal with print print costs, but most of it is just your time, you and Ashley's time in, in being able to put this, you know, sort of put this out there. I know you want to make it sort of accessible and available, but still, you and Ashley deserve to be compensated for the amount of time that you put in there. But tell me how, how you sort of figured it out. You know, what considerations do you have to make to keep it where it is and not increase it or or come up with all these sort of different options and add-ons and stuff like that in order to increase revenue. Yeah, we don't uh, we do not do that uh, yet. What, I mean, initially, one of the, the plans was to use the magazine as a vehicle to, to, grow, to grow a user base and an audience and then sell them other services, workshops, uh, online online training, and we've done that a bit over the years. I haven't spent 
as much time on that as we wanted to, and that's why it's low. Started out at a dollar ninety nine a month. You know, the whole method called the PFA method for pricing, which stands for pluck from air, which is <laughs> or, or a swag, sophisticated wild ass guess. <laughs> yeah, we did raise we did raise the monthly price. And sometimes I wonder about that. I mean, because when you think about we charge six ninety nine a month, forty four or six six ninety six ninety nine six ninety five. I can't even remember six ninety nine a month, forty four ninety nine per year. And we have to look at things like Netflix, Apple TV Plus. And, you know, what do you pay for those? And you know, people compare that. Gee, I'm paying seven dollars a month for this magazine. I'm paying the same price for Apple TV Plus when I get all these movies and TV shows and things. So, uh, so that you know that that makes it a little tough. You know, so we have to compete with that, and we have to compete with other magazines. We're in the same price range as other magazines in the same, you know, in the same uh, genre. And uh, but we do need to offer more services. You know, not really add-ons and bolt-ons, but uh, um, other options. Uh, we did do, um, uh, Harvey Stein did a uh, street photography um, online course during the pandemic for us, and, and that went over very well. I should do it myself, but then again, it's like, who the hell am I? What can I teach anybody? So maybe I should go back and listen to your podcast, uh, 278, again. I, 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 I feel the same way. <laughs> Even though I teach, I still feel that you same do. way. Yeah, imposter syndrome. That because... You're exposed to all these amazing photographers, and you think, "My God, I'm not as good as Sam Abel." You know, it's really weird, and yeah, it's like I know I'm an exceptional teacher, mm -hmm. not just because of what I'm teaching in terms of the photographic practice, but what I bring out from the people who study with me. Because mm -hmm. I, I almost always see a transformation, whether I'm spending two days or a week That's... with them. And for me, that part of me is why I love doing it. The, the sort of imposter thing is not so much that I'm not as good a photographer as that, but I, I, I feel like it's hard for me to say, to sort of promote, you should you should spend time with me because I'm me, because mm -hmm. I because yeah. that's basically what it comes down to, and then and it's like who am I to say that? Yeah, but it's like I <laughs> part of me like knows it's true because every time I I see the evaluations for the courses I get and I see the comments, you know, and I get the feedback and people tell me how transformative it was. There's a woman who just recently got uh, published in Lenswork magazine who took mm. one of the workshops that I was doing during uh, during COVID, where it was about using your, your personal life to produce a, a project. And because everybody was home, mm. you had to use your own life to do it. And she did, uh, she focused on her mom who was in decline due to dementia. It was like really powerful work in oh. the class. Oh, and man. She, you know, she followed, she continued working on it until her mom passed. And she put together a portfolio of the work and it got published in Lenswork and she sent it to me. Oh. And it was like one of the most gratifying things I'd ever experienced as a, as a teacher to see that. Because I remembered some of the work she had created in class and then I got to see 
in the publication what else she had made of it. And it was so moving and so touching. And I felt um, a, a huge sense of gratitude that I helped to facilitate that. Because I really oh, yeah. didn't do a whole lot in terms of teaching. I just I just created a space to encourage people to do things that they were uncomfortable with and to see what they could discover as a result. And and when I sit down to sort of like market that, I have a I have a hard <laughs> time figuring out how do I can how can I, I I feel inadequate and I feel awkward about conveying that in marketing marketing ease market ease or whatever you know what yeah. I'm talking about that doesn't sound pretentious yeah, I do yeah well there's so many pretentious people out there <laughs> selling snake oil that it, it's easy to get mixed up with them. but I know how you feel about teaching because there's nothing like there there's nothing like having somebody tell you how you've made a difference in their lives yeah, I'm a lifelong martial artist, although I haven't done much since we moved because my school's back in Cleveland. But there was a group of us. I mean, we were together for 30 years. So we had a lot of kids, young kids come to our school and they would go through it from being a little kid up to adulthood. And one night after class, this young guy comes up. He's like in his early 30s now. And he goes, you know, I just got to tell you, he comes from a family. His parents broke up when he was young. He goes, I just got to tell you, you know, the things you've taught me over the years, not just in terms of fighting or those kind of skills, you've just made such a difference in my life. I, I just have to thank you. Like, I, I couldn't even talk. Mm. I, I said, wow, I've never, I, I didn't even respond to him until a couple of years later. Wow. And that, that's such a gas. And, that, and that's true in any kind of training. Um, so it, that's amazing. You get to feel that on a regular basis. And do you feel like you're doing that with the magazine? Sometimes. I did I did hear from somebody just last week or the week before saying, you've been such an inspiration. And I go, wow, I never thought about that. Maybe the people that we put in the magazine are an inspiration, but me too? That's fabulous. It felt great. Yeah. I think you are. For me, you are. You know, and I, I know that for a lot of other really? people. Really? Yeah, absolutely. You know, mm. I, I may have sort of triggered, helped to trigger what you're doing, but when I see what you've done, <laughs> you know, because the idea of, of creating a, you know, a magazine and sustaining it over 10 years and and producing this, you know, this tangible thing, granted virtually, but still this sort of tangible thing yeah. that is, that serves to inform educate inspire and entertain people i think that's it's it can be underrated and it's easy for us to undervalue it because we're the one who's making the sausage right <laughs> that's right i see and i put a little too much sage in that time yeah but you know as yeah. as as consumers yeah. of other yeah. kinds of content we've had the experience where you know reading a book or seeing a film or or, or something mm -hmm. has just you know, touched us and moved us in ways that the creator couldn't have ever, ever have imagined. So I, I think we kind of have to both sort of remember that what we do is likely save, serving, the, serving that role for people who we will never meet and will never hear from. Yeah, because most people don't reach out. You just don't hear from them. I, I mean, I don't reach out when I 
hear a great podcast episode from somebody or read a, a great book. So I'm sure most people don't. Most people don't write bad reviews on Yelp. Yeah. Or good reviews on Yelp, unless they want to get famous themselves. Who knows? Oh, I do need to tell you one other thing. Here. Okay. Why I took a street photography online course, and that's probably the first time I even knew what street photography was. But you used to teach classes on better photo mm, right. years ago. I signed up for a class of yours, and it was port- portraiture. And, and I'm looking at this. Who is this guy? <laughs> you know, I was trying to pronounce your name. <laughs> I go, okay, well, all right, who is this guy? And I read the syllabus. Oh, you know, it was right to start. And, and, you know, you listed everything that you were teaching. And one of the things, one of the classes was about going out in the field and making portraits of strangers. I don't even know if you remember this. Oh, yeah. And I read that. And I broke into a cold sweat <laughs> because after all, I'm shy, right? Mm-hmm. I said, you know what? I don't think I'm ready for that. So I canceled and I signed up for another class on street photography with, uh, this, I forget their first name, the Silvermans. Oh, yeah. Neil and Susan. In San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. And they, matter of fact, they happened to be, they were former photojournalists for the Cleveland Plain Dealer where I lived. And so I took their class. And that's where I met up with all these other people who eventually became some of my first uh, subjects in the magazine. And again, if it wasn't for you, in two different ways. <laughs> I just keep showing up. You just do, <laughs> just like Forrest Gump, like I said. I'm often asked, um, oh, what are your favorite interviews? What's your favorite interview? Or who has been your favorite guest? And I, it's not it's not a question yeah. that I can answer. Because so sometimes people will ask me, have you interviewed this person? I have to go into my own website and go, um... Because I can't uh-huh. remember it's so many, so many six hundred plus, plus. No wonder. So, but for you, what is what has been some of the more gratifying content to to produce on the show? Either because of the person you showcased, or just because there was something about that issue that you felt was as unique or, or special. Oh man, there's so many. So many. I, I, I've been agonizing over something else, which I know you're going to ask later. God, there's some. I think. I think one that really s- sticks out was probably uh, actually two two people have passed away. Actually, I'm going to say Lynn Spire, who passed away several years ago, maybe six or seven years ago. Uh, he was. Uh, uh, New York street photographer, also a uh, intellectual property attorney. I think it was probably the personal connection we gained from that. Um, I mean, I like his work a lot. And as he got older, he was in his mid-80s, and he could barely walk, and he started riding the bus, the M5 bus, which went the entire length of Manhattan. And But he couldn't write the article so I wrote it for him, you know, with his photographs. And, uh, but he just, he was the same age as my father who passed away quite a while ago, 30 years ago. So we just made a real nice personal connection. He was somebody who was, like I said, the same age as my father. I didn't really have anybody, you know, in that generation. So it really wasn't the work, but it was just, Sort of the personal connection. He was a real, real mensch, you know, and he, he and he just kind of gave me fatherly advice that I I wasn't getting anymore. Mm. 
And I wouldn't, that would have never happened had I not, you know, had not met him through this magazine. Uh, yeah. I, I share the same feeling about a lot of guests. Yeah. And especially having done it as long as I have, they're, they're you know, photographers yeah. that have passed away. And, yeah. you know, some far younger than they should have. And I'm sort of glad that, that the show sort of serves as a repository for for their work, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they gained the kind of huge fame and notoriety, but that somehow, you know, that their work sort of lives on. And I, I suspect that that kind of is, plays a kind of role in in terms of how you feel about your own your own work. Yeah, I mean, actually, with what we're doing, we're creating history. In a way, we're preserving history. Uh, another one similar was uh, Glenn Capers. Yeah, I knew Glenn. Was, yeah, did you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really I liked him a lot. Just such an interesting guy, and then he passed away like four years ago. And I just had somebody email me a couple of days ago. Guy, he goes, "I just listened to the podcast of Glenn Capers. You know, sorry to hear of his passing." And I said, "Yeah, I'm glad we that's out there, and anybody can listen to it." So my my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, man. Every time I listen to your show, I hear that question, and I think, boy, how do I answer that one? I've been agonizing this ever since you did the invite. So um, I'm going to say Michael Ruggiero, who he will be – well, tomorrow, well, I don't know when this is going to air, but he's our June 2023 featured photographer. I've known him for several years, met him through Harvey Stein. Harvey has introduced me to many excellent photographers. And uh, Mike, uh, matter of fact, he moved from New York near me. He lives in uh, in the Charlottesville area now. And uh, he's quite a guy. He was uh, He's a couple years older than I am. He's influenced early by... Cartier-Bresson, and he went to France to meet him, and he did back in his younger days. That's that story's in a podcast I just yeah. just published with him, which I won't tell it myself. But he uh, his work, I really connect with his work. He does very long term projects, like years and years, and and he spent several years riding with truckers. And doing a documentary series on truck drivers. And he did a lot of it in the 70s and the 80s, uh, which I found very, very interesting. So he's done that with truckers. I mean, he went out. He's, he was a chef. Just retired not long ago. And then so during periods of time, he wouldn't work as a chef. He'd go out and do all these projects. And he rode with truckers. He'd go to some place and he'd connect with them on at a truck stop. And then he'd go ride with them for hundreds of miles. And then he'd hook up another trucker and get back to his car. And really deep. I mean, you talk about being embedded. So he's, he's done a lot of that kind of work. Very interesting. So uh, so I would say Mike Ruggiero. It's spelled R-U-G-E-R-R-I-E-R-O. And I assume you probably want to put that in your show notes. So take yeah. a look at Mike's work. And uh, I think you'll like it. Uh, I shoot with him. Personally, we've gone out a couple times. I've oh, learned a cool. ton from him yelling at me from, you know, <laughs> walking too much. I walk too much. <laughs> and we stand in the same place and take photos of the same things. And I, okay, yeah. but the, that's it. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on 10 years and, and happy birthday. Well, thank you. 
And I really appreciate your invite. I was thrilled. A special thanks to Bob for joining us today. Check out and subscribe to Street Photography Magazine by visiting their website at streetphotographymagazine.com. And if you're a fan of our work here, we encourage you to write reviews on the podcast platform of your choice and share your favorite episodes on social networks via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I teach a street photography workshop through the Los Angeles Center of Photography. And right now, it's a great time to sign up for mine or any of the great courses they offer. Through June 13th, they are promoting an early bird sale that offers 10 to 20% off select summer and fall courses. Find out more by visiting lacphoto.org. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can make contributions via PayPal or Patreon. Links are in the show notes. We've recently relaunched our newsletter, and by signing up on our website, you'll receive updates on everything related to TCF as well as book recommendations, announcements for special events and workshops from us and some of our guests. And if you're having trouble finding all our show episodes on your preferred podcast service, you can download the Candid Frame app from Apple iOS and Android. Thanks to your generosity, the app is free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And I'm Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.